You're listening to Just One of the Guys, the podcast that isn't afraid to take a stand on things, as long as it's a stand about how awesome Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner are. Hello and welcome to another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. This is an internet radio show dedicated to bringing you coverage of the Green Lantern comics from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004, with a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, two of the greatest Green Lanterns out there, and two that don't get the respect that they deserve. And I'm here to give them that respect. And... A bit of respect comes to both of them as they're both taking a stand. <laughs> Get it? See what it did? Yeah. It was obvious. It couldn't be any other song. Against some pretty major foes. In Green Lantern, Kyle is taking on the person who's been offing Dark Stars, and surprisingly, it's a brand new character that's created for the Green Lantern book, and it's a character that has some interesting origins. Origins to uh, someone that's a big bad in the DC universe, and Someone that we maybe never would have expected to Kyle to fight. Or maybe you would have. You never know. In Guy Gardner, Guy is also taking a stand against Guy's rogues gallery. Yep. Sledge, Dementor, he's evil clone, Black Serpent, and an extra special villain that has some ties to Green Lantern. Has some very disturbing ties to Green Lantern. Sadly, this is the penultimate issue of Guy Gardner Warrior, and, well, Guy takes it out in his own fighting style. But we'll get to all of that after these obligatory Two True Freaks mandated podcast promos. But as soon as we get done with that, we'll head into our coverage of Green Lantern number 74. Stay tuned after the break. Obi-Wan, your lightsaber's showing. Take a bath, Pete. Live long and good. Suck it, Frodo. I'm sick of being a goddamn scarecrow. I'll give this podcast thing a try. Two. I'm here to chew bubblegum and kick your ass. Wow, you've gone from very fine to near mint. What a man. 
size matters not. TwoTrueFreaks.com Hey everyone, my name is Michael Bailey. And I'm Jeffrey Taylor. And we host a podcast called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. Presented by the Superman homepage. On the show... Wait, wait, wait. What? This just isn't working out for me. It's not bombastic enough. We need something epic. Like what? Welcome to From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, presented by the Superman homepage. I am Jeffrey Taylor. And I am Michael Bailey. From Crisis to Crisis chronicles the adventures of Superman wait, wait, from... Wait, 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 wait. I'm just not feeling this. I'm just wondering how there's a needle-scratching sound when all of this is clearly digital. Look, all we need to say is that this is the, a trailer for a show called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast presented by the home, Superman homepage. My name is Michael Bailey. I am Jeffrey Taylor. And every week we give in-depth synopsis and reviews for just about every Superman book published between Man of Steel number 1 in 1986 and Adventures of Superman number 649 in 2006. We also talk about the related Superman media, what was happening in the rest of the world when these comics were published and what else was going on in the DC Universe. The show drops every Thursday-ish at the Superman homepage, which is located at www.supermanhomepage.com. From Crisis to Crisis is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, located at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. So join Jeffrey and I each week as we explore Superman during the post-crisis era, which includes Exile, Panic in the Sky, Doomsday, The Marriage, and Beyond. And write into the show at FromCrisisToCrisis at gmail.com and hear it read on the air, eventually, because we get behind on that sort of thing. Superman created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Side effects from From Crisis to Crisis include loss of money from buying back issues, a desire to read 20-year-old comic books, nausea, drowsiness, pizza, blurred vision, upset stomach, a desire to kick puppies and kittens, and backache from lifting boxes of Superman comics. If the excitement of From Crisis to Crisis lasts more than four hours, seek immediate medical attention. And we're back. And it's also time to get into that portion of the show that I love doing the most, reading the comments and emails from you wonderful listeners. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> and we started it again because I've been really behind on this. On a few letters from my Canadian listener, Mr. Scott Davis. Hey, Scott, how's it going? Scott writes in first with a letter titled Guy Gardner Warrior, number 25 and 26. He writes in, Sean, I was able to catch up on some Guy Gardner this weekend, and I have some comments about 25, 26, and Deathstroke, number 42. Guy Gardner, number 25. The opening was nice, where Guy visits Queen Olaf to pay respect to Ice. The splash page of Dementor on page 8 was hilarious. What's with his long pubic hair blowing in the wind? Yeah, that was a disturbing image. I don't know what Mitch Bird was thinking there, but yeah. I can't believe Guy was drinking and driving on page 13, causing Heather to be in a coma. This is terrible. Did Guy ever pay for this crime? There must be a Guy Gardner version of Emerald Dawn here somewhere that needs to be addressed. Uh, no... Guy really doesn't pay for this, and unfortunately, Heather is a character that's pretty much overlooked after a couple of issues, sadly. 
Uh, he moves on saying, Destro 42. I know you didn't review this issue, but I picked it up just to see what Guy Gardner was up to in this series. It was very nice to see that Hooker Sally is back in NY, sledding it up again in the brothel, but it was weird that she's Caucasian now. Wow, I'm glad I didn't pick up that issue of Deathstroke. That's odd. There are a few brutal death scenes, and the fight between Guy and Deathstroke is pretty good. But something very disturbing was the mother-daughter combo that's available for customers uh, at the brothel. Ugh. Uh, not into that. In the end, the whole whore daughter Rose gets kidnapped, and the whore mother Lily is a little pissed off about it. Uh, great. Prostitution in comic books. Let's let's hear it for DC. It was an okay issue, Scott says, but I'm not really interested in pursuing any more Deathstroke. That being said, I'll be kind. I'd kind of like to find out what happened to the whole whore daughter. Uh, you're more interested than I am, Scott. Guy appears in Deathstroke 44, but I don't have it. Neither do I. And if this is the Deathstroke you're talking about, and this is what it's dealing with, I don't think I'll go picking it up. Scott continues, Guy Gardner 26, I agree with you about the art by J.H. Williams III. It was very off in this issue. Your comment about Guy looking like Sloth from the Goonies was hilarious. Yeah. Everyone raves about J.H. Williams, and the art that I've seen from him in the uh, Batwoman book, I guess, has been amazing, but this stuff was just, ugh, hideous. Scott continues, I found it very nice that Buck wants Guy's headquarters to be in New York, but they don't really explain why. Maybe it'll be explained later. I noticed a huge difference in the writing between Gerard Jones and Bo Smith. Jones's version of Guy would have been all over Verona when she dropped her knees in front of Guy and said, I'm here to see to all of your knees in work and battle and in pleasure. But in Bo's version, Guy only lifted her up and said, You're no slave. I thought this was a big difference in Guy's character. Yeah, there is a difference between Jones and... Jones still was of the mindset, I think, of Guy being sort of a lecherous... Not really cad, but a lecherous guy who really was just kind of a jerk at heart, but had some good spots. I think Bo Smith saw more of the good character in him and saw that he was... Well, tried to portray him as, like I've said before, the two-fisted man of action, that sort of John Wayne, Burt Lancaster-type character. But... Yeah, I think uh, if Gerard Jones wrote this, there probably would have been a few more innuendos with uh, Verona being down on her knees in front of Guy. Scott continues, I also thought it was a bit strange that Guy allowed Nick Santos to kill so many people in front of him, but I guess when you're trying to save the president, anything goes. Your comment about Clinton wearing the master's green jacket was hilarious, and you're right, it was weird seeing the Twin Towers attacked by terrorists. Yeah, it's not, you know... It's not unthinkable. I mean, back in uh, 95 when this came out, uh, there had already been an attack on the Twin Towers. I mean, nothing as major as what happened in 2001, but still they were a quote-unquote target of opportunity, so it's not unheard of. Scott finishes up saying, Thanks, Sean, and have a great week, Scott. And moving on, we've got another letter from Scott, this time talking about Greenlander number 58 and 59. It opens up saying, Hi, Sean. Hello again, Scott. I hope to catch... Uh, sorry, it says, I hope things are going well down there in the Sooner State these days. Eh, it's summer now, so it's very hot. I was able to catch up on a few Green Lantern issues this week. Green Lantern number 58, this was an awesome issue. Specifically, it was awesome because of the terrible flirting between Kyle and Donna. Oh, 
you don't know the half of it. Firstly, on page 5, where Donna is about to help Kyle unpack his boxes, she asks, where do you want me to start? I thought for sure that Kyle was going to say in the bedroom, but he didn't. That's because Kyle is not Hal. Hal is a lecherous person, and Kyle is kind of... well, he's not. The old Hal would have said it for sure, though. Uh, there you go. Kyle's flirting is terrible at the beginning, but then he tries to make up for it at the end. On page 8, Kyle says, You're probably only a couple years older than me, which is probably the worst thing you could say to a girl. Again, Kyle's inexperience is sort of a Lothario. But then he makes up for it at the end when he asks Donna, when he thanks Donna for helping and says, That's got to be it worth dinner at least, and then purposely gives her his jacket so that they'll have to get together again in the future. Nice save, Kyle. On the opposite end, Donna is even worse at flirting than Kyle. On page 10, she tells, tells Kyle that she's divorced and has a kid. That was another terrible flirting move because now she sounds like she's coming in with baggage and would probably scare off 99% of single men. Not if she looks like Donna Troy. Just saying. This whole scene was absolutely hilarious. It's funny that Kyle already feels so confident with the ring that he can blast people's heads to jog their memories. In the end, the issue was okay, but I felt like the whole purpose of the issue was to introduce the Felix Faust characters to the readers and to get people to buy the outsiders. It's not going to happen for me. Didn't happen for me either, so don't worry. Greenlander number 59. I'm not sure if I like Kyle being another member of the new Titans. He's considered to be a junior member, and it kind of sucks to see him being treated that way. I had no idea that Arsenal used to be speedy. Yeah, and he used to not have ridiculous pouches either, so there you go. I've been meaning to read those issues, so I'll try and get to them soon. Uh, don't get to them too soon. And then why is Tara called Tara, T-A-R-A? Well, I think it's because Tara, T-A-R-A, is her actual name. It's Tara Markov, and she just goes by Tara, T-E-R-R-A, because she has those earth manipulation powers. It seems like a weak secret identity. Uh, it wouldn't be the first time someone used their name as their superhero identity, but there you go. After finishing this issue, I have no idea what Dr. Polaris was trying to do. It looked like he was only hanging out at Rockefeller Center to look at the Christmas tree, and then he was all of a sudden attacked by Kyle. Eh, he's Dr. Polaris. He brings that on himself. The end was awesome when Donna goes for the open mouth kiss on Kyle right away. We definitely know how this night ended for the both of them. <laughs> Wink. Thanks, Sean, and have a great week, Scott. Thanks again, Scott, for running in. We've got one more letter from Scott this time out, and it's entitled Green Lantern 61, 62, and Parallax View Parts 1 and 2. Again, Scott begins with, Hi, Sean. Hello again, Scott. He says, I was able to get a few more Green Lantern issues under my belt, so I thought I'd pass along some notes. Cool. Glad to read them. Uh, Green Lantern number 61 says, Don is trying to kill Kyle at the beginning of the issue, but we find out it's just a race to find out who will be quote-unquote slave for a day, which I'm certain every one of us would love to be Donna's slave, if you know what I'm saying. But if this is that how, but if this is how Donna acts when she's in these fun races, then she's absolutely crazy. If it's that kind of crazy, I don't think I'd mind. On page 5, Donna is already showing jealousy over a ring construct of a maid. Yeah, there's some awkward writing there. Run now, Kyle, before you get too deep in this bush. Oh, uh, their relationship is fine. 
On page 6, Kyle has his legs unnecessarily spread wide open when pouring wine for Donna, but Andy Smith does not does draw a pretty hot Donna, so maybe this is his way of pleasing the reader of both sexes. Sadly, I don't remember that, and probably for the best, thank you. Another funny panel is on page 19 with Kyle totally grabbing Donna's, Donna's ass, and I think you guys missed this on the review. We might have. Uh, I don't think we were looking... For some reason, it Donna's ass all that much, which perplexes me. I agree with you guys that Hal Jordan on the last panel looks nothing like him. In fact, I thought it was someone else pretending to be Hal. Yeah, that was the one where Hal sort of pops up in the hitchhiking and it, it looks like Tom Arnold. It was really odd. Going back to the email, Scott says, Greenlander number 62. I thought the villain on the cover, who was half robot, half monster, was a weird design and looks pretty weak. Again, Donna spends the first seven pages trying to emasculate Kyle by basically telling him how weak he is as a man. This is not a good way to start your new relationship, you ask me. Some quotes. I thought you were supposed to be in shape. Do you ever exercise? Is this exactly why you need to be in shape, Kyle? Do you ever have any training? You should be capable of defending yourself. Don't start using the ring as your crutch for everything. I'll take pity on you this time. Run, Kyle. Uh might be looking a little too deep into Donna's not really nagging of Kyle but Donna's trying to get Kyle to rely more on himself rather than the ring but eh, I'll give you something there I don't like how Kyle is wearing Dallas Cowboys pullover either Scott continues the Cowboys just won their fifth Super Bowl in 1995 so Daryl Banks must be a Cowboys fan but it is disrespectful for him to make Kyle wear it when we know Kyle is from LA and obviously a Raiders fan uh, like I said, the issue, I don't think Kyle is a fan of any football team. He's just a fan of cool clothes, and the Cowboys, I guess, were cool because they won the Super Bowl at the time. Scott continues, this is the weirdest looking Ganthet that I've seen, and it looks like Joe St. Pierre came in to save the, last, save the day on pencils. I guess Daryl Banks was too busy watching the Super Bowl. Uh, Could have been. I guess the Hal fans haven't given up on complaining because it looks like we're going to have another Hal-Kyle showdown in the next issue, and I'm going to go out on the limb to guess that Mars is going to have Kyle come out on top again. Uh, surprisingly enough, that's kind of what happened. Yeah, that's difficult to understand. Scott continues, Parallax View Part 1. I like that Kyle is defending himself all this time, unlike how easily he gave the ring back to Hal in issue 0. You guys are right on the splash page of Parallax on page 7 was excellent, and Dolphin is definitely hot on the panel on page 12, where she turns to the reader and shrugs her shoulders. It's kind of stupid. Yes, Dolphin is hot, and that panel was awkwardly stupid. I fully agree with you. I thought the character's look to the reader was taboo in comics. No, obviously not, and maybe Mars is just kind of breaking the fourth wall a little bit on that. Good issue, though, and the cover of Kyle and Parallax was excellent. Parallax View Part 2, another good issue between Parallax and the superheroes. I thought that Green Arrow hitting Hal with a bow was weak. Eh. Green Arrow was kind of just tossed into this issue, and I know we finally figured out why he was wearing the uniform that looked like uh, Connor's, but still, uh, the fact that he was in this was just kind of thrown in because of his relationship with Hal. Can we put an end to this and finally declare Kyle the new Green Lantern for the last time? I think at the end, Superman pretty much did it, so hopefully this will be the case, but it's not going to appease the heat, people. 
Scott continues, I feel the controversy is starting to drag on. We've had Superman's endorsement now, so that should be enough. I wholeheartedly agree. When Superman says, you're a Green Lantern, everyone else needs to shut up. I absolutely love the epilogue, though. It was a very creepy ending with Hal huddled, uh, with, huddled by himself on some weird planet. Excellent stuff. Thanks, Sean. Have a great week, Scott. Well, thank you, Scott. I'm glad you enjoyed these issues. I'm glad you're still writing in, and I'm hoping that you're finding the underlying music that I put under this is entertaining. It's tough to come up with new brush songs every week. Our next letter comes from a man who secretly wishes he could get his own giant robot so he could go punch giant dinosaur monsters. It's Mr. Luke Giaconetti. Luke Giaconetti writes in with an email saying, A deal any sane man would refuse, episode number 68. Luke says, Sean, my friend, I hope that you read the contract you signed with Signore DeBonzo. Signing a contract with the devil might not be as bad as it seems. I'm finding out more and more that the contract I signed for the Two True Freaks podcast network is coming with a lot of odd clauses. Still having to find a place to get rid of the... Ladies that uh, Senor DiManzo sent me. Regardless, anyway, Luke continues. Anyway, I enjoyed your coverage of these two issues, which connected to Underworld Unleashed. I remember thinking that Underworld Unleashed had a lot of potential when I first started reading about it in Wizard and Comic Show News. Of course, part of this was I was 15 at the time, and believed that more violent, dangerous, monstrous bad guys would help DC think, shake things up. Hmm. Wonder, wonder if that worked out for them. Luke continues, but obviously more violence and more extreme villainy is the answer. <laughs> yes, it is, Luke. You, you go with that idea. Oh, well, he says. I do remember a couple of things from Underworld Unleashed. The return of Lex Luthor after his death in the lead-up to Action Comics number 600, and the revamp of Major Disaster over in The Flash, which turned him into the master of chain reactions, which was cool and used to very good effect in the pages of The Flash. The other thing that I remember is the quote-unquote fifth color, that bright green color, which is all over the series and the tie-ins. Ugh. That green for all the covers. Ugh. It was it was like you were watching The Matrix before The Matrix was even created. Ugh. Whatever. You mentioned the monogram models advertised for the Shelby and Corvette kits, Luke introduce, which features which featured an exclusive Batman comic book. The issue that was reprinted was Batman 279, featuring the Riddler, which is obviously better than the Diddler, but I'll go on. I don't know why Monogram had a promotion going on with DC at this time, but they had, over the years, released a lot of DC-related merchandise. Monogram in the 70s and 80s sold reissues of old Aurora model kits, including, I'm pretty sure, the classic Batman and Robin kits. I don't know if they issued, reissued Aurora's Batmobile, Batplane, Batbone, and Batcycle models, though. Looking forward to more Underworld Unleashed wackiness, Luke. And, to finish up, Luke says, P.S., just for fun. Starlight, star bright, evil star I see tonight. Starlight, star bright, yeah. Can't believe I just sung that. Evil star and Madonna forever intrinsically linked together yes well right now in my book they're about on the same
And to close out emails this time, we get a, another email from Mr. Jackanity with the title, 69 Dudes, as if anything else could be used in the subject line. Obviously, Luke is writing about issue 69. He says, Sean, another week, two more issues, which DC has never collected. It just goes to show that some things never change. I'm certain you get the same thing, Luke. I know I just recently listened to the uh, issue of or the episode of Fire and Water podcast that you did with uh, uh, Rob and Shag and uh, talking about the Hawkman comics as well. And I'm certain you might be kind of disappointed that those issues aren't collected. However, being that some of them weren't all that great, you might not want them collected. But there it is. Luke says... The thing which struck me about these two issues, Green Lantern 69 and Guy Gardner Warrior number 38, is they both focused on the supporting characters. In Green Lantern, we get some glimpses of Allison, Lee, Rachel, Cleveland, and some others. Then over in Guy Gardner, the spotlight is shown on Aresia, Verona, Tiger Man, and Buck. One aspect in which modern comics, I'm sorry, one aspect which modern comics unfortunately have gotten away from is the use of supporting characters to populate the hero's world with. I think it's telling that some of the best modern superhero comics still utilize a strong supporting cast and use them not only as window dressing, but as an integral part of the story. The current Flash and Wonder Woman are good examples of just that. I would say at the time as well, if you're listening from Christ to Crisis, they would say that the supporting cast in the 90s Superman books were a big part of the books as well. So I agree. When you can have supporting characters that are interesting as the heroes in the books, it always adds to the overall flavor of the book. Luke continues, believe it or not, the Sega Genesis was released in 1989. Holy cow, I completely just glossed over that. It, It had been that long since there. So by 1995, he says, it was already a full six years into its install life and still going quite strong. Speaking of the Genesis, Vector Man was a game which had the draw of, quote-unquote, 3D polygon graphics. One of the strengths of the 32-bit systems over the 16-bit systems were they could manipulate 3D polygons. Vector Man sidestepped this by making the hero and other characters made of not polygonal prisms, but rather spheres. The Genesis could handle manipulating these, since the sphere naturally looks the same at every angle. A neat trick, but just an average game. Yeah, I don't remember specifically playing Vector Man, but I remember seeing these ads and not being too overwhelmed by them. Luke continues on, though. He says, I remember Dragon Dice, though, but I don't know if I ever played it. The game is uh, the same sort of vein of Zombie Dice or Cthulhu Dice. Ugh, don't want to be something Cthulhu where it was only very vaguely connected to the theme. It felt more like a straight dice mechanic. Simple dice games like this make for good quote-unquote filler games, that is, something that you play before you get more serious or mentally taxing games, or when waiting for someone to make a pizza and beer run. Probably the latter. Anyway, still enjoying these issues, so looking forward to more. Luke. He writes in, P.S. Nice use of Elvis Presley to start the show, Sean. Things go all Bubba Hotep up here in this week. Ah, uh, Bubba Hotep, Bruce Campbell, we love you so. But that's going to do it for emails. I'm hitting about the 30-minute mark on the record, so I'll go ahead and cut off emails and tell you, everyone, I really appreciate you writing in. Luke, Scott, thanks for writing in. If any of you want to write into the show, the email address is still just one of the guys, podcast at gmail.com. Uh, I love getting your emails, and I love reading them on the show, and I'm glad I've had some time the past couple episodes to get back into reading them. We're coming 
down to sort of clearing out the uh, email back. So I'm glad to do that. But I'm also glad to be able to get into our coverage, oddly enough, of Green Lantern number 74. Green Lantern number 74 had a cover date of June 1996 and a release date of April 4th, 1996. Its cover price was $1.75 U.S. and $2.50 Canada. The title was Stand. The writer was Ron Mars. Penciler back this time was Daryl Banks. Anchor Romeo Tangal. Colorist Linda Bedley. Letterer Albert Guzman. Associate Editor Eddie Braganza. And Editor Kevin Dooley. Picking up where we left off last issue, Kyle Rayner is wondering just what the heck Darkstar Donna Troy is doing in Gateway City. Donna claims she wasn't looking for Kyle. She was looking for Wonder Woman. Kyle lacks a little petty, saying that it's nice to know that Donna didn't want to see him, and Donna explains the entire situation with the Dark Stars. It seems there are more than just Dark Stars being murdered, entire planets are being decimated as well. And in order to try and stop the destruction, Donna was trying to enlist the help of Wonder Woman to aid Jon Stewart and the rest of the Dark Stars who were headed to the rendezvous on Ron. Donna turns to leave, but Kyle isn't about to let her go back empty-handed. Despite everything that's gone on between them, he's not going to let her head off into this fight without his help. Meanwhile, miles above the planet Ron in the floating dome city of Ronagar, whatever, Jon Stewart and the remaining Dark Stars make their plans for defending the planet. The heroes are approached by Ron's defender, displaced Earthling Adam Strange, who tells Jon of the Dark Stars that Ron doesn't have much in the way of military presence. In fact, Adam is pretty much it. This doesn't bode well with John, as he relates the swath of destruction that he's witnessed happen to his teammates. Uncertain of their future, the champions prepare for a magnificent seven-level standoff. Back in space, Kyle and Donna warp toward their meeting point on Ron. Donna asks Kyle why they took a ring construct ship instead of her dark star ship, and Kyle cites something about not driving the ex-girlfriend's car. Sheepishly, Donna asks Kyle why he was in Gateway, and Kyle relates his quote-unquote quest to find out what it means to be a hero. He thinks he's learned a lot from all the heroes he's met. He just needs to figure out how to work all their advice together. Donna asks if the fight was a reason for his leaving, and Kyle says it was a part of it. He admits that having Allison overall naked and stuff wasn't the best idea, especially without telling Donna, and Donna says that her reaction only made the situation worse. But before the two can figure out where the relationship is going, a blast of energy blows up the ship real good, and Kyle and Donna start some interstellar kick-assery with their foes. Back on Ron, John assesses the Mega Zeta Beam and hopes that it can be used as a weapon, but is distracted by the arrival of Charisma, who has been shot down by the attackers. Watching his teammate fall, John turns to see the entire enemy fleet has warp jumped directly into the domed city and are releasing ground troops to take the heroes out. John and Adam try and take the fight to the enemy leader, but it seems that person is coming to them as the ship lands nearby, permitting the fleet's leader, Graven, to order his troops to leave no one alive. Adam and John attack, but are quickly taken down by the Titan, who claims that his father would be proud of what he's done. Out in space, Cal and Donna are mopping up the remnants of the attacking ships and leaving the survivors in reconstruct bubbles for the one disabled ship to pick them up. Good deed done, the duo rush off to Ron, only to find Adam Strange unconscious and Jon Stewart being throttled by Graven, who looks upon Green Lantern and proclaims, You're next. 
Well, we finally get the reveal of the big bad in this issue, the one who's been terrorizing the Dark Stars, Dark Stars over the past few issues, and it truly is a pretty big one. Graven is a character that was created for the Green Lantern books, and he's the son of a pretty impressive villain of the DC Universe. I'm not going to spoil it yet, it'll come next issue, but s- suffice it to say, he's a, he's a pretty bad character. And even though the readers don't know who the uh, son, who he is the son of, uh, he does pose a major threat for Kyle. Uh, probably the biggest threat since Major Force. Now, on the art side, Banks is back at the book, and even though he started out on the run with Kyle Rayner's character, I've kind of grown to like Pelletier's writing, or not writing, drawing a little better in the book. Banks' style is probably more in line with the classic look of a Perez or an Ordway drawing, and Pelletier's art has, well, has a less harsh, angular line work. It's a lot more smooth curves. There's a difference in styles aside, but Either way, this is a really good book, and the artwork is pretty good, and the cliffhanger at the end really gets you wanting to read what's going to happen in issue 75. So let's go ahead and take a look at notes. We'll start out with a cover. Again, like most covers are that have a proclamation of death on the cover, we get an image of Donna Troy, Kyle, and Jon Stewart on there saying, Who will die? I mean, it's a pretty deceptive cover, course no one in the book actually dies in the issue i mean at the end you see john look pretty beat up but i'm pretty certain he's not dead i'm not dead and he doesn't want to go back on the card pages two and three banks quite can't quite seem to get donna's hair quite right from panel to panel i mean on page two she's got really jersey hair and then on page three it's a bit more subdued and looks a little bit more like the way Pelletier was drawing him like I said Banks's art differs a lot from the way Pelletier does and they're both good artists and they both do a good job of drawing the characters but when you're getting used to one and you get transitioned to another it sort of takes you out of the book for a while there's an adjustment period time Plus, on these pages, Mars is writing Kyle in more of a vindictive manner than he did during the breakup issue. In that issue, uh, it was more Donna being sort of mean-spirited and calling Kyle out while Kyle was trying to sort of ease things over. Here, Kyle Kyle is being a bit more bitter towards Donna. And again, it's nice that Mars writes both the characters in a way that you could see both their sides. Unfortunately, this time, Kyle seems to be being a bit more of a jerk. However, I am glad that on page 5, that even though Donna and Kyle's relationship is on the rocks and they're not really getting along very well, he's at least hero enough or man enough to go help Donna out when she needs help. Despite the fact that their relationship isn't going well, he's not going to let her go off and fight this unknown assailant without his help so Kyle despite the fact that he has negative feelings towards Donna is at least willing to do the right thing and I'm glad that that's a part of his character page six panel three we get the reintroduction of charisma who we last saw I think in an issue of Guy Gardner Warrior in fact I think it was issue 38 that one by Phil Jimenez that was just not all that good so it looks like whenever you know, XGLs, 
you know, decide to leave the core or if the core is dissolved by the fact that Kyle is the only Green Lantern now, they head on over to the Dark Stars. And I guess we've got not only Charisma, but John Stewart and I think uh, Gallius Zed, which was the sort of ball-looking Green Lantern with the short arms and legs. All of these characters moved over to the Dark Stars. And I know the Dark Stars were sort of related to the Green Lanterns with the controllers, who are the leaders of the Dark Stars, being an offshoot race of the Malthusians that the Guardians came from. So I guess the Dark Stars are just second-rate Green Lanterns, which is probably why at the time I was never really that interested in them. Page 9, panel 2. Again, I like Kyle's use of constructs, and it's kind of interesting here in this panel where it looks like Kyle has the robot from what looks to be a cover of Heavy Metal Magazine piling the ship. It's got the sort of... best way I can describe it is the Robocop face helmet and the multiple arms. I'm pretty certain this was a Heavy Metal cover. It definitely looks like it's ripped from there. Plus, this is a good page that distinguishes the artwork from Pelletier and Banks. Like I said, Paul Pelletier does a much better job at facial expressions. On this page, Donna and Kyle's faces just look pretty blank. In the breakup issue where Pelletier was drawing him, you could see uh, expressions on the faces of Donna and Kyle. There was exasperation there. You could see Donna biting her lip at times. These are pretty just bland, almost mannequin-like looking faces. It's not a slam on Banks as an artist. It's just Pelletier put a lot more emphasis on characters' faces and the way they're expressing emotions through that. So there you go. Moving along to pages 10 through 12, I like Mars's story. I like the way he's trying to organically bring Donna and Kyle back together. He's not trying to force it, really, but he's letting them have a conversation and uh, showing their feelings and emotions toward each other and why they broke up initially. Unfortunately, Daryl Banks's art isn't really helping sell it. So it's kind of, it's kind of upsetting that Daryl Banks is back and maybe this was just sort of a rushed issue and he hasn't really gotten back into the groove uh, with it, but I'm certain it'll come a lot better Banks was really good at the beginning of this, and I'm hoping this was just kind of a quick fill-in issue that he kind of rushed in after he had the Green Lantern Silver Surfer thing that he did a couple of weeks ago. Page 13, of course, another thing that has to happen when you join the Dark Stars, if you're a former Green Lantern, you're bound to die as Charisma, who's just brought back, is now suddenly dead at the hands of this character that we have no idea who it is. And moving on to pages 14 and 15, maybe I'll call this out on the anchor. I don't want to blame Romeo Tangal, but it looks like on Banks's on this two-page splash here, that the inking is really thick, and maybe that's making the artwork look a little off, because around if you look at the lines around the characters, the inking around them is really thick, and it's not as detailed, so maybe that's uh, what's throwing the artwork off a bit. Again, I'm not certain if it's Tangal doing it or if it's Banks just sort of rushing this issue, but again, the artwork isn't up to the standard that I've been expecting of the uh, Green Lantern books. Then moving on to page 17, we get the introduction of our two main antagonists in the uh, book, 
And you know how you can tell that they're a 90s antagonist? Their names are Graven, as in Graven Images, except spelled G-R-A-Y-V-E-N. And his little female sidekick is Cynthia, spelled S-I-N-T-H-I-A, as in sin, as in mortal sin, and all that. So yeah, they've got the goofy spelled names, and Graven's got the shoulder pads, as 90s characters do, and and it looks like he's got some either gems or pouches on his belt. Maybe gems, I don't know. And he's got a wicked mullet. So it's definitely the 90s. Plus, uh, a kind of giveaway to who this character might be. He's got definitely a very Kirby pose, especially with the uh, Kirby hands stretched out there. So maybe that'll give you folks an idea of who this character might be the son of. Page 18, panel 2, a little bit more hinting about who this character might be. Uh, Graven hits Adam Strange with some weird beams that sort of crisscross out of his eyes. It looks like heat vision, but, you know, they've got a weird sort of wavy look to them. So if you know what that might be related to, you can probably guess who this character might be an offspring of. Page 20, I think it was really, well, really noble, maybe kind of nice of Kyle to leave the uh, attacking force safe and reconstruct bubbles with a disabled ship there to pick them up. I'm not exactly certain if the enemy forces would do the same, but I guess that again shows the nobility of the characters of the superheroes in the DC universe, especially the nobility of Kyle here. But finally on page 22, we get the final splash page of Graven holding Jon Stewart in one hand, choking him and, John doesn't look bad, and neither does Adam Strange. Graven looks very 90s, saying, you, you're next. Plus, uh, the other 90s thing about him, he's got really, really tiny life field feet. I mean, really tiny. Other that, either that or he's like 17 feet tall, and the perspective is just right on. But yeah, tiny life field feet. It's the 90s, Jake. But that does it for the Green Lantern book. I'm going to take the obligatory break here, plug a couple of promos for a few podcasts, get something to drink, and when I come back, I'll be ready to dive into the penultimate issue of Guy Gardner Warrior. The dawn of an age. The founding of a family. You know we haven't done enough research into the effects of cosmic rays. We've got to take that chance. Conditions are right tonight. Let's go. They're penetrating the ship. Our shielding isn't strong enough. I feel like I'm burning up. Too heavy. Can't move. Too heavy. We're all alive. I feel so strange. You're fading away. I can't see you at all anymore. Look what's happened to you. You're changing. Oh, Reed, not you too. What happened to me? To all of us. I can fly! We gotta use that power to help mankind, right? And so was born the Fantastic Four. Or soon the Mole Man will have the entire world in his power! I am the mightiest living mortal on Earth. Anyhow, mankind shall feel that might. The Fantastic Four. Little do they dream they're the palms in the hands of Dr. Doom. Human Torch will be the Puppet Master's next victim. You bastards can't change the way I can. That means I'm the most powerful person on Earth. 
I've been expecting you, for I am the thinker. I vow never to return, my lord, until the fantastic four are no more, and the planet Earth is no more. You are in the presence of the awesome Ralatans, king of kings, master of men, and lord of the seven suns. Fool, you're just a muscular freak, blind or hawk. Stop! You must not enter the castle of Diablo. My journey has ended. This planet shall sustain him to the drained of all elemental life. So, speak Galactus. Flame on! It's clobbering time! The Fantastic Four from the very beginning witness the origins of a legend. The Fantasticast. ffcast.libsyn.com Greetings, podcast listener. Do you like... Ready to form Voltron! Or maybe... How about... I am Batman! Or... This is a job for Superman! Do you remember... Power Rangers! Or this? Right away, Michael. Or maybe even this? Autobots, transform! (laughs) Or this? By the power of Grayskull! Or... Or have you seen the latest episode of... Hello. I'm the Doctor. If you answered yes to any of these questions, then check out Charlie's GeekCast, hosted by me, Charlie Niemeyer. Charlie's GeekCast is a bi-weekly podcast covering comics and other geek stuff. The first episode of each month is devoted to comics, where, currently, I'm covering Grant Morrison's run on JLA, one storyline at a time. The other episode of the month is devoted to whatever else I want to talk about, such as movies, TV shows, cartoons, video games, and more. Feel free to check it out at www.charliesgeekcast.com. You'll be glad you did. Well, hopefully. And we are back to take a look at... Uh, yes, again, the penultimate issue of Guy Gardner Warrior in Guy Gardner Warrior number 43. It was cover dated June 1996, released on April 17, 1996, had a cover price of $1.75 US and $2.50 Canada. The title was A Warrior's Passing Part 1. You broke my heart, so I busted your jaw. Classy. Writer was Bo Smith, penciler this time out was Brad Corby. Inker Dan Davis, colorist Lee Lowridge, letterer Albert Guzman, cover art was by, by Phil Jimenez, and editor was Eddie Braganza. After a one-page wrap-up of last issue, we're treated to two pages of what we've come to expect in the book. Over-the-top, 90s ultraviolet fighting between Guy Gardner and Hanover Fist wannabe Sledge. But while Guy and Sledge duke it out on the streets of Manhattan, Martika speaks with a shadowy figure. The voluptuous villain tells her charmed minion to go out and kill Verona in order for her to have control over Guy, and the unknown underling heads to the Choppa just to do that. Cutting back to the fight, Guy blasts Sledge with an arm cannon, knocking him through a building. The warrior follows the carnage to finish the job, gets a blast to the back from his evil clone. Sledge subdues Guy as his clone punches him over and over in the face. But Guy's not done yet as he morphs some shoulder cannons to blast Sledge and some face armor to protect him from the blows. Of course, this couldn't be easy for our hero as Black Serpent arrives with his pirate crew to try and subdue the warrior. 
more McFightenstein occurs with the mentor showing up to join in the fray as well. A quick cut to the shadowy figure breaking into the warrior's bar, and that's back to the fight as guys beating the f*** out of the not-so-frightful foursome. Over at the bar, Aresia, who's about to leave for a beach vacation, finds that the shadowy figure is actually Major Force, back from the dead. While Guy is taking out Sledge and the clone, Aresia is running from Force, who now seems to be able to morph weapons from his hands as well. Cut back to Guy and Dementor, reenacting a scene from the Spaghetti Western, as the two prepare to draw on each other. Guy, of course, outdraws the terror and fills him full of Boldarian lead. And as Dementor falls to the ground, Guy puts his morph gun to his head and ends the life of the nightmarish ne'er-do-well. At the bar, Arisi has managed to pull a gun from storage and blast Major Force in the head with the cryo-capsule. Unfazed, Force displays some more morphing powers as he lassoes Arisi and drags her to him. Placing his hand over the former GL's face, Force rams gooey tendrils into her flesh, suffocating Arisia and laughing as he watches her die. Back with Guy, the police are in the process of mopping up the remnants of Guy's fight when Lady Blackhawk arrives and lets Guy know about what happened to Aresia. And despite being completely depleted from the bout with the rogues gallery, Guy pledges that he's coming for major force. And hell is coming with him. If I could use one word to describe this issue, that word would have to be rushed. It seems like the cancellation notice came kind of quickly, and even though we kind of felt that the writing may have been on the wall, maybe Smith & Company didn't really know. Maybe it was just handed to them one day and said, look, the issue's coming to an end, wrap it up. Because Bo Smith was planning some things out. The character of Martika was coming around, he hadn't really fully fleshed her out, he had brought back Dementor and gotten rid of him as well. It looked like he had some really good ideas for the characters and the crew of Guy Gardner Warrior. It just didn't seem to work out. Uh, Especially with the fact that Guy's rogues gallery was just these four guys, and it it could have been so much better, in my opinion. But that being said, I think Bo Smith makes the best out of it, and uh, at the end, having the big bad be major force is a really nice way to sort of tie Guy Gardner back into the Green Lantern universe and tie it back into the Capital Punishment storylines. It's a nice cliffhanger ending, and it looks like Aresia might also may have met her fate the same way that Alex did. Well, not the same way, but at least by the hands of Major Force. But that being said, let's go ahead and take a look at my notes for the issue. We'll start with the cover, which is some nice work by Phil Jimenez with Guy being surrounded by his rogues and someone else because you've got the four rogues you've got Sledge on the uh, left side, then you've got uh, the Guy Gardner clone on the top left corner above Guy you've got Dementor, then you've got Black Serpent in the top right hand corner, and then you've got someone else It's Blue Boots. I don't think it would be Martika. Um, Who knows who it is, but maybe it was just an artistic design that Phil Jimenez decided to do, but it doesn't look like Major Force because he was wearing purple, I guess. So, uh, who knows? 
page one, we get the recap page for last issue, and I like Gorby's art. It's a nice sort of contrast to uh, Mark Campos's art. It's still that sort of 90s stylized look, but it feels a bit more cartoony, especially at the top panel where we see Guy sort of examining himself as he's been changed into Gal Gardner, and the facial expression on Lady Blackhawk is really humorous. Uh, the coloring still is pretty bad. It's the generic purples and blues, and I don't want to dump so much on Lee Lowridge. I don't know what he's done, but his coloring on this book is just really bad. And as far as I could tell, using Mike's Amazing World of Comics, Lee Lowridge seems to have a pretty good career with a bunch of comics, so I don't know why his work seems so so not bad, but just so rushed in these books. So who knows? Page two, I thought it was uh, fun putting on this two-page splash as Sledge punches Guy in the face through a car nonetheless, as Sledge is just ridiculously over the top. It caught my eye in the background that the uh, theaters were playing a double feature of Hard Boiled and The Killer, which were a couple of John Woo movies. And again, here's a real... It's it's perplexing to me, because on that front page, the coloring was really bad. It was really just sort of one simple monochromatic color in each panel. And over here, the coloring's fine. It's really detailed. The shading is nice. The colors blend everywhere. And it's... I think when they're going for the darker colors, it just sort of saturates it and makes it look just bland. And when when it's got more colorful stuff that's got the flesh tones and the lighter colors it looks a lot better maybe that's just me and the way i like looking at the pictures who knows and also on the same page i forgot to add the uh they had the little uh humorous quips that they put in between the names of the uh, creators of the book and it was story was by Bo beat me smith the pencils were by brad hurt me gorby inks were by dan kick me davis colors lee whack me uh lowridge Letters, Albert, Smack Me, De Guzman, and Edits, Eddie, Make Me Write Bad Checks, Briganza. There you go. Page four, panel three. I thought this was kind of interesting. Uh, Sledge says, me and Joe don't walk that way. It's only curtains from you. It's only curtains around here are going to be for you. I think this is the first time in not only this book, but in any book that Guy's clone has been referred to as his not really given name, but his taken name is Joe. And we'll see Joe Gardner come back in the comics as well. So there you go. Now we can start calling Guy's clone Joe. He has a name. Joe's a good name. Page six. I think we mentioned in a previous episode that uh, Emma Frost and Bartika seem to be shopping at the same sort of sluts emporium that you get these ridiculous outfits from. I'm kind of afraid that Emma Frost would even me saying that the outfit Martika is wearing right now is way too skanky. And when Emma Frost is calling you out on skankiness, you know that you've crossed the line somewhere. Plus, also on this page, how does the shadowy, muscular figure get to the place where he's supposed to meet up with Guy Gardner? You guessed it, a Mach 1 Plus attack helicopter known as Airwolf. And cue the theme are playing Airwolf. Uh, it's fun. I like that theme. That's that's fun. 
I can understand why Andy and Steven try and put it in every show. Too bad I won't be able to do that very often now. Page 8. I hate to use this term, but my kids are all into the My Little Pony stuff. Brad Corby tends to draw Sledge with a very derpy face. I mean, in the Capital Punishment storyline, Sledge was a big bruiser, but he was a military man who was selected for this experimentation who gave him this super strength or whatever. He had to be not intelligent, but at least more intelligent than he's portrayed here. Here, he's almost Savage Hulk level of intelligence. And it doesn't fit the character. Plus, I'm really saddened that I know what a derpy face looks like, so there's that as well. Then on page 9, as Black Serpent comes in with his band of pirates, cyber pirates, obviously, why is the only thing that I can envision is Alan Tudyk's character from Dodgeball the movie? These are not cool Johnny Depp pirates. These are lame, lame pirates. Page 12, as we get to see a little bit more about the unknown assailant that's coming to the Warrior's Bar, we notice that he has morphing powers too, as he puts his hand on the lock and then suddenly turns into a sort of a Jaws of Life type thing, crushing the lock open. So the whole secondary plot we've had over the past couple issues with the things that have been going on in the Quorum Labs is finally coming to fruition in this issue. And then finally on page 14, we get the reveal of Major Force as the uh, big bad in the issue. And yeah, he's uh, he's still the jerk that he was in the Green Lantern issue, so nothing's changed with Major Force. However, there have been some changes for Guy. It's on page 15, panel 5 here, we see him morph his hand into sort of, well, sort of tendril-like things. The his hand, his fingers sort of become tentacles, and he smashes it up against Sledge's face and then releases it, and basically a sort of almost alien-looking chest hugger, or face hugger, chest person, or face hugger, attaches to Sledge's face and gasses him and knocks him out. So that was a neat sort of morphing ability that I can actually get behind. Again, it's not giant guns, it's more... Guy Ewing seeing his ingenuity in his morphing abilities, but I thought it was kind of neat and wanted to point out that there was something new in Guy's arsenal. Then on page 16, we get an editor's note saying that Major Force was last written in Extreme Justice. So I've got to assume that this is the first time anyone's seen Major Force since the whole Capital Punishment storyline. Pages 17 and 18, I think we get here essentially what Bo Smith wanted to do with Guy Gardner. The morphing abilities with Guy pulling a gun out of his hip thing, I don't know. It's obviously morphed out of his leg and fighting Dementor with it and Dementor having the cowboy hat and the long trench coat. <sighs> Thankfully, no, uh, no overly long groin hair covering his naughty bits, but yeah, I think aside from the artwork there, this is what Bo Smith wanted Guy Gardner to be. He wanted him to be he wanted him to be a gunslinger. He wanted him to be, you know, John Wayne again. So it's nice that he got at least this chance to write him that way before the series was ended. 
Moving on, I don't have any real notes until page 21, where this time I will give it credit. The dark purple and blue coloring here on the page actually works to sort of minimize the gore that could be had on this page, as Major Force basically extends his morphing fingers into Aresia's head and pulls it back and looks like he might have ripped her face off or done something pretty horrible to it so it's an icky page and well major force is an icky character let's let's just leave it at that and again to sort of finalize the idea that bo smith wanted guy gardner to be a two-fisted man of action and in the lines of you know classic western heroes he ends the book with he called me out well i'm coming and hell's coming with me a line directly from the movie Tombstone. And I think it's a nice ending to this chapter of Guy Gardner. And I think next issue, we're going to see some interesting stuff going on with him. I mean, it's all going to be wrapped up, but unfortunately it had to be wrapped up far too quickly. I understand why it wasn't, wasn't going to go any further. I mean, people have kind of gotten tired of the, ridiculous of the 90s with the with the big guns and the big shoulder pads and the just over-the-top characters and finally guy gardner was one of those people who had to bite the bullet so to speak and had to go out hopefully bo smith will be able to take him out on a on a high note we'll check that out next time but we still have a few more things to look for in this book and those are some of the 90s ads that hopefully aren't playing to the stereotypes of the -the over-the-top characters at the time. And here we can see sort of, well, I guess the demarcation line between the sort of big muscular 90s and the more, not aesthetically pleasing, but the more well-written, more well-rounded storylines is it's another ad for A Kingdom Come with uh, the advertisement says The Dreamer, The Thunder, The Bat, The Eagle, The Angel. Whose Will Be Done, Kingdom Come, written by Mark Wade and Alex Ross. Uh, like I said, I think this is a good demarcation to delineate from the sort of chasing image version of DC Comics up to the more, well, to my uh, to my estimation, modern age of DC Comics, where Morrison started taking over the JLA, Mark Wade came in to write more books. It's disappointing to me that the 90s gets dumped on like this, and it really was only a small section of the 90s, and even though that era of the 90s was chasing image, as I've said so frequently on this podcast, there were some good things to come out of it, and the Guy Gardner book, in my opinion, was one of those things. And again, speaking in the 1990s, there was no one hotter in the 1990s than Jean-Claude Van Damme, or Van Damme, however you want to pronounce his name. This was for a movie called The Quest, which was actually directed by Jean-Claude, uh, See if I can see anyone else in here. No real other names in it. Oh, except for Roger Moore. Oh, and James Remar starring in it, but writers don't really notice anyone. I guess, uh, no, the story was by Jean-Claude Van Damme as well. So you can imagine there was a lot of kickboxing going on in it. And the next page is an ad for Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? The comic. Yes, friends, they replaced, well, they didn't replace, but Guy Gardner went away in a 
where in the world is Carmen Sandiego comic came in to take its place. I'm sad right now. A few more pages in, we get absolute power, all it cost him was his humanity, an advertisement for Tachyon, a comic by Paul Copperbird, Aaron Lepresti, and Gary Martin. Supposedly, Tachyon is a character that's related to the new gods, and basically he draws his energy from the source wall, which is basically the big... It's the big thing that, oh, what's-his-name, Darkseid is trying to look after, trying to figure out... Eh. I don't know. I, I give credit to Kupperberg and Lepresti, a good storyteller and good artist, but I think this only ran seven issues, and I have no idea whether it was good or not. I'll, I'll give it a pass, because I think Kupperberg's a good writer, so there you go. Then we get the return of the Artemis Requiem uh, house ad for DC Comics, and again, Ed Bennett is drawing it, so you know there's boobs and butts aplenty, and yes... There definitely are in, and I think I mentioned before, a testament to careful shaving as well. However, a few pages in, this is an ad I can get behind. The caption is, Darkseid failed, the Joker flopped, Neron fizzled, Sergio Argones destroys DC. And it's got wonderful Sergio Argones art of uh, all the major characters. It's got Hawkman, Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman... Flash, Kyle Rayner, Kyle Rayner, Green Lantern, and Martian Manhunter as well. So essentially, he's got, he's pretty much got the uh, Morrison Justice League, uh, save Hawkman, who, I guess, <sighs> sorry, Luke, uh, he just couldn't make the Justice League. They had to, who did they replace him with? With Zoriel? Eh. But uh, it's uh, drawn by Sergio, Sergio Argones and written by Mark and Evier. Fun stuff. I love pretty much anything that Sergio Argonis has done is going to be good stuff, so this would have been hilarious to read. We get a couple of pages of the Comics Buyer's Guide Fan Awards and the 5-Minute Fode Guard for subscribing to two DC Comics. Yeah, that wasn't fun last couple of times. But then the back inside cover has, and I don't remember them printing this, but I wouldn't be surprised that they did, it's the Pinking in the Brain comic, and it's uh, written by David Cody Weiss and Bobby J.G. Weiss, and illustrated by Walter Carzone and Mike DiCarlo. And it's got an image of Pinky in the Brain wearing very Power Girl-style costumes, stuffing their chest with tissues, because that's what it seems to sell big comics at the time. At least that's what the brain thinks it will. Yeah, that's right. But then the back outside cover is for a even better animated show. It's it's the Earthworm Jim series of cartoons. Now, I had completely forgotten that Earthworm Jim actually made, I think, about a season or two worth of uh, cartoons based off the video game. Uh, I don't remember them being all that funny. I think they played in syndication around here. I think I watched a couple of them, and they weren't that memorable. They did have some good voice talent on it. I know um, Jim Cummings was in it, and I think Dan Castellaneta, who plays the voice of Homer Simpson, amongst a myriad of other voices on The Simpsons, uh, played Earthworm Jim. So this was an advertisement for the uh, video cassettes of uh, Earthworm Jim that you could buy that probably had two episodes each. So 
there you go. Earthworm Jim the show on video cassette. Buy it now, kids. But that's it for ads, and that's it for the issues. Sadly, we've only got one more issue of Guy Gardner coming up next time, and then it's no more. Plus, we've also got an issue of Green Lantern next time, obviously, and we're going to figure out who the heck this mulleted big guy who shoots beams from his eyes is. We're also going to see if Kyle can handle him. Plus, we're also going to see if Guy can deal with Major Forrest. What the heck's going to happen to him? It'll all be wrapped up next week. In fact, it might be even wrapped up with a semi-regular co-host of mine. For certain folks. He wouldn't miss the ending of Guy Gardner Warrior. So be sure to tune in in seven days, and we'll see you then on another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Two True Freaks podcast family member. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Shawnee. All images, stories, and music are copyrighted to respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the tendencies of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to know. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcome, too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website, located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting on. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast, or search for Two True Freaks, the new world, too. And you can subscribe to either the show or Two True Freaks there. You can also search me on Facebook. And now you can actually find me there. As it was a requirement of my new DeMonsacore contract. But it still doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Mafia Wars group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening. And come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Gods. A Greenland. The opening song for today's show was Stand by R.E.M. off their album Green. If you'd like to buy this song, or buy the album that it's from, I suggest you go to Amazon.com. And I'd also suggest that you go to TwoTrueFreaks.com. The brand new Two True Freaks website still has that Amazon.com link at the top of the page. If you click the link at the top of the page, go to Amazon.com and purchase something, whether it be the song Stand or the album Green you'll be giving a little bit of money back to the Two True Freaks, and it won't cost you an extra cent. So, if you ever plan on going to Amazon.com to buy anything, please be certain to go through the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com. It helps out the podcast, and it helps out me as well.